Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews with your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where I talk about and review a rock album of my choice. This episode, we welcome back once again to the podcast, guest co-pilot, Mr. Paul Lange. Paul, good to have you back. Thanks. Great to be here, Aaron. So on this episode, we're covering Nirvana's 1991 album, Nevermind. Paul, where do you come in with Nirvana in this particular record? All right. Well, I first saw Nirvana's uh, Teen Spear on MTV sometime in September 1991. It was actually the like the top five most wanted of the night, and... It sticks in my mind because I said to myself, this is a rock song and I've never seen it yet and it's in the top five. Yeah. Like I thought I would, because I watched a ton of MTV and listened to a lot of radio and so I figured I heard everything that's going to be popular at least, but no. So it really stuck in my mind for that reason. So that's why I can remember like when I first heard it and then when I heard it, I just, I thought it was, I was like, what the hell is this? But I'm like, this is freaking awesome. Like it was this kind of dichotomy of like, what did I just watch? And this is awesome. Like, I love this. Yeah. So I thought to myself, like, this is a great metal song. Little did I know that they weren't trying to be metal. Right. But, you know, to me, it was all metal, right? Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Miley Crew, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Yeah, loud guitars. It's It's all metal, right? So I quickly bought it on cassette within, I don't know, probably a month or so and listened to the hell out of it. It became a big Nirvana fan. It was a, it's an album that I've listened to over and over and over again over the years. My tape is, which I used to, to listen to, to, to prepare for this. Yeah. <laughs> My tape is shot. Just wore out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny. So this album came out when I was in sixth grade. And I remember Kurt died by the time we were, you know, graduating eighth grade. Uh, so the Nirvana career was really short, but I became a huge fan. Um, and I still listen to this album to this day, probably a few times a year. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So... I think like most people, it started with Smells Like Teen Spirit for me, too. I was in the service when this record came out, but it felt like you could hear it playing all over the bass at the time, and then the video for Teen Spirit helped to just blow this band up really fast, though at first I was kind of oblivious to it. I got the Nevermind CD fairly soon after hearing that song, and I thought the album cover with the baby and the little wanger poking out, <laughs> swimming out of the dollar bill on a hook was pretty funny. Yeah. But I had no idea what kind of sea change it was going to ultimately inspire in the music world and pop culture in general. I just thought it was a good album. And it wasn't until years later when I got out of the service that I realized the impact that this album made. And then, of course, the band was so short-lived, like you kind of alluded to, that it just seemed like it was over before it even began. Yeah, yeah. And that was that. Now here are some basic facts about this record, because Wikipedia says so. Nevermind is the second studio album by American rock band Nirvana, released on September 24th, 1991, by DGC Records. It was produced by Butch Vig and was recorded in April 1990 as well as May 2nd to the 19th, 1991 at Sound City Studios, Van Nuys, California, and Smart Studios, Madison, Wisconsin. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified diamond by the RIAA. Next, I'll give you the band's lineup card. We've got... Kurt Cobain on lead vocals, lead guitar, and rhythm guitar. Krist Novoselic on bass guitar. And Dave Grohl on drums and backing vocals. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. Alright, it's time for a track-by-track analysis of this album. Kicking things off is Smells Like Teen Spirit, written by Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl. What do you think? All right. Well, Smells Like Teen Spirits, one of my favorite songs of all time. Nirvana is one of my favorite bands, so it, that's not surprising. Um, but this song gets you ready to rock 
right from the start with the guitar intro, and then you have Dave Grohl with a thump, a thump, a thump with his drums, right? Yep. It, you know, it just it just explodes after that. Dave Grohl's drums rival John Bonham's, I think, in general, definitely on this album and definitely on this track. Kurt Cobain was a big Pixies fan, so he stole a lot of the quiet, loud dynamic from them um, and some other bands that he liked from the time. And the lyrics are mostly nonsensical, although I guess it was intentional. Kurt Cobain used to say that music was first, lyrics were second. His main concern was the melody. He's not a linear writer at all, so it doesn't like tell a story from point A to point B. He doesn't care about spelling or grammar. In fact, uh, the sound or the meaning was way more important to him. And you can tell that with a lot of his songs and then the way the, the lyrics and the vocals just kind of flow with the track. But either way, certain lines in the song seem to really kind of sum up this whole generation. First of all, here we are now, entertain us, and then oh well, whatever, never mind. Yes, it was cynical, and it was also a shot of life. The hello, how low part is doubled and brings a lot of depth to the vocals. Uh, I guess Butch Vig, the producer, had to tell Kurt who was a huge Beatles fan, that it was okay to dub the vocals because John Lennon did it. Yep. The song explodes into the chorus, and I've always loved the feedback into the third verse after the solo. He bends and morphs it well into the into the verse, and it's really kind of interesting. Yep. Uh, this is one of the last songs written for the album. Most of the others have been kind of kicking around for a year or so. Yeah. Who knew when this came out that this was going to start a musical revolution? This tune's got a lot of what Nirvana and grunge in general would be known for. Quiet verses with loud, distorted choruses. Kurt Cobain wrote the main riff and chorus melody, and Chris Novoselic slowed down the riff. And that inspired Dave Grohl's drum part, which is the reason all three of them got the writing credit. Kurt admitted the song was massively inspired by the Pixies, and holy shit does it sound like a Pixies cut. The title came from Kurt's friend Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill, writing on his wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit, meaning the teen spirit deodorant his girlfriend wore. But Kurt was unaware of the deodorant and saw it as a slogan, which kind of fits with the lyrics, which are very open to interpretation, like you were saying, Paul. But to me, it's sort of about a revolution for young people who don't want to be a part of a revolution. There's kind of contradictory statements in it. Load up on guns, bring your friends. It's fun to lose and to pretend. Oh, well, whatever, never mind. It's a revolution for slackers. And that's exactly what Generation X was perceived as at the time. In the verse section, the guitar almost chimes as Chris' bass continues the chorus pattern, but it's kind of smoothed out. The distorted guitars blare out. The solo apes the verse vocal melody, and Dave's drums sound massive. You alluded to John Bonham. I kind of agree with that. Kurt's voice is an effective instrument. It's hoarse and craggy and emotional when he raises it, yet he has the ability to make it sound wounded and tender when he lowers his volume. And here's the thing about Nirvana in this song. Hell, the album as a whole, for that matter, the chorus is incredibly catchy. There are pop hooks all over this fucker. It's a pop tune disguised as a punk alternative jam. And it's produced that way. This isn't a raw demo quality basement recording. There's gloss on this. It's designed for mass consumption. I don't care what the fuck they said at yeah. the time. And consumed it was, with MTV playing the shit out of the video with its chaotic pep rally, and the track became an anthem in Nirvana's signature song, which the band seemed almost embarrassed about at times. This was the album's first single that reached number six on the U.S. Hot 100 chart, and I still dig it. I still dig it, too. Yep. The next track is In Bloom, written by Kurt Cobain. What do you say? All right, this song gained some popularity as a single, but at the time I remember getting bored with it. I wasn't a huge fan of this song at the time. Hmm. Now I listen to it, I like it. Yeah. You know? One of the first songs written when they went to LA to record, but they also worked on it back in Madison, I guess. Dave and Chris uh, have a great rhythm section going, it's an awesome groove. Dave said the unspoken rule was no drum fills, and Chris said it was the, his job was to serve the song. 
Uh, Dave harmonized those, those chorus along with Kurt, and their voices, you can tell, are very similar in ways. They kind of have some similar, I don't know, tone, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And uh, again, he had to kind of convince Kurt Cobain here to, to double up on the on the vocals. And, yep. And it sounds really good, though. Yeah. Yeah, because this album was originally going to be recorded in Wisconsin, right? That's where Butch Vig's studio was, in yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. So they cut a lot of tracks there. Yeah. But then they ended up moving it to California. I, I can't remember why. Like, like the, the mixes weren't coming out right or something so, like that? Uh, what I could gather from my looking back was that Kurt blew out his voice. Right. And then, like, within a day, they went on tour anyways. Right. So they held up the recording, and then they, sh- they used what they recorded to shop a major label as opposed to Sub Pop, because Sub Pop was kind of going under. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... So they took that um, to Geffen and some other places, and and they got a deal, and and then Geffen off said, of those Wisconsin demos, off the Wisconsin demos. Okay. Yeah. So and then Geffen said, "All right, you're going to record us out in L.A. with a big time producer," and they said, "No, we want Butch Vig, but right. we'll, do, we'll do it in L.A. But we want Butch." Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because they kept some of those tracks and built off them, right? I think they built off of them. I think from what I could see, there's only one um, that actually that was actually yeah, recorded out yeah. there. Okay. Yeah, in Bloom, this follows the formula of the first track. It's got quiet verses with prominent bass and a noisy, catchy chorus. Kurt does play a clean funk-style lick in the verse just before the chorus hits, which is cool, and I dig his distorted tone, very fuzzy and punk rock influenced. The solo's just okay, kind of screechy and unmelodic. Kurt's never going to blow you away with his leads, but it keeps a proper rough feel for the track. Dave's drumming is a highlight for me. He's a powerful rock drummer. He's got a way of keeping that beat and yet making it seem loose and unhinged. The lyrics take the task to those new fans who were starting to show up at Nirvana shows and weren't part of the underground music scene because of their first album, Bleach. Kurt kind of saw them as fake, but hey man, you reap what you sow when you make a bid for the mainstream, you know what I'm saying? The video was cool with a band in black and white like they were on the Ed Sullivan show in the 60s with Chris bobbing his head to the side and Kurt looking like a cracked out Buddy Holly. (laughs) I like this song and it was the fourth single that reached number five on the U.S. mainstream rock tracks chart. The following track is Come As You Are, written by Kurt Cobain. Paul, how about this? Uh, again, this was a wicked popular song back in the day, right? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it got played on MTV and the radio almost as much as Teen Spirit, really, yeah. from what yeah. I remember. So, you know, as a fan, I loved it. But again, it was one of those that kind of, it was one of the slower songs on the album. It kind of drones. Yeah. So it, it kind of, I don't know. You got bored with it you after a while? got bored with it, just like in Bloom, right? Yeah. But the you know now now I listen back and I love it again, right? Sure. But at the time, it was a little boring. Yeah, when you take a little break from it, sometimes you can catch that yeah. feeling again. Yeah, or you, you hear different things in it that yeah. you didn't really listen to before. Right. But this song is all bass and drums, and then the guitar suddenly kicks in for the chorus. Memoria, which yep. is not even a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the lyrics, along with the bass and drums, kind of hypnotize you, kind of draws you into its own little world. Um, I love this little meandering solo. Kurt did a lot of that meandering yeah. solo stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I like it. I dig it. And this song was, like I said, really popular, and, and just everyone loved it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, this sounds a lot like 80s by the English rock band Killing Joke, but 80s also sounds like the earlier Life Goes On by The Damned, so damned if you do, damned if you don't. Killing Joke did bitch about the similarity, but I don't know, imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. I mean, Kurt was very aware of it, and it doesn't ruin the song for me at all. 
The guitar sounds swampy with a chorus effect on it, I believe, and the drums are a little bit more restrained and back a bit in the mix. It's a little bit more mid-tempo, like you were saying. Again, Kurt writes some catchy melodies, and his voice is double-tracked for the entire song this time. Lyrically, Kurt seems to be telling a friend he hasn't seen in a while to be his or herself, how they are now, don't be fake, whether they're the same person he remembers or not, a friend or an enemy. The song is mellower, yet there's still some underlying tension with I swear I don't have a gun. Good tune, and it was the second single that reached number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100. The next track is Breed, written by Kurt Cobain. All your thoughts uh, this one's one of my favorites on the album and it was from from day one that that intro it's the the bass is the riff in this song yeah right? like yeah and novice Shellick is it's just he just brings this whole different dynamic as a bassist to to like any song yeah and uh and, and i love it and and so with the bass riff it kind of just it, it just soars right from the start uh there's all sorts of feedback um, in the song, which which kind of adds to the heavy aspect of the song. I love how each instrument kind of kicks in one at a time and sets the pace. Chris' bass, like I said, really carries the song. I love how the solo plays with the audio from right to left and, and then back to, to mm-hmm. right. And um, there's some hilarious lyrics here. Uh, like, we don't have to breed. We could plant a house. We could build a tree. Like, he plays on the words there. Yes. And he does it a lot. And was, most of the lyrics on the album are, there's humor in them, right? Yeah. They're, they're kind of really funny. But yeah. This one yeah, the band had a sense of humor. Oh, yeah. 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 Cobain had a great sense of humor. Yeah. The whole band did, right? But, yes. Yeah, Cobain, as a writer, had a great sense of humor. And he tortured himself over the lyrics. Oh, yeah, you know? I guess. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, I love this song. It's yeah. awesome. This is a nasty, fuzzed-out, in-your-face, even the bass has got the fuzz. (laughs) And Dave pounds the skins and makes it go very propulsive. It all seems so simple, but it really works. Again, though, the chorus is hooky. And I love the dun-dun drum part when Kurt G says dun-dun. Dave kind of answers them. The solo is just noisy tremolo picking that bounces from side to side, like you said, in the headphones. The lyrics are said to be inspired by Toby Vale, drummer of Bikini Kill, and Kurt's former girlfriend. Matter of fact, she inspired a lot of the lyrics on this album. Yeah. And Kurt's pleading to do whatever it takes to stay together, though from what I've read, the relationship was pretty toxic. I dig. I dig. I dig. I dig. I dig this three-minute blast of fuzz. <laughs> The following track is Lithium, written by Kurt Cobain. have it all right this song was an instant favorite and it it is my favorite nirvana song like more than teen spirit more than anything else this song it, uh, it just rocks right from the start like we were saying before kurt blew out his voice in uh, recording the song when they're up in wisconsin um and that kind of initiated the move to la kurt's the lyrics here are really dark um but it's this upbeat song despite lithium being this terrible drug for all sorts of different mental disorders yeah but i've always loved that the chorus is just yay yeah <laughs> repeated over and over yeah uh that's just like it, it's just so simple they wanted all the songs on this album to be simple they wanted it to be a, a popular album yes right? like they wanted it to be like the heavy metal version of the beatles and sort of yeah in a way right yeah like and they just wanted it to be popular yeah. and it's so they made it simple just like the Beatles. The Beatles songs were, were simple. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the early ones were, for early sure. Beatles, yeah. 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 So they wanted this to be popular, but then they complained about it. 
Maybe yeah. a lot, turned a lot of people off. Yeah, you know? it but did. It's, it's that punk rock. It made me ethos. raise my eyebrow at the yeah. time, but yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, and me, me too, even as at like the a 12-year-old, right? Yeah. Like, I was like, what? Like, yeah. How do you not want to be popular? <laughs> yeah, this is what you were trying to do. <laughs> how do you not want to be a rock star? <laughs> yeah. I want to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you came here to write a song like this, produced like this. And you're telling me you don't want it to be a hit. You don't. Come on. They blame the um, the mix. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that, that's why it was too polished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fuck that. Yeah, baloney. <laughs> this is another cool track, and it's another quiet, loud one. Chris plays a simple but memorable bass line, and Kurt's guitar plays this loose, clean line that seems to wander off beat at times. And Dave is playing lightly on his hi hat and a wood block. And then the big drums signal the pre-chorus and the heavy guitar chords blaring with Kurt's, yeah. The chorus is sing-along as anything with the repeated, I'm not gonna crack line. I love that. And Kurt said the lyrics are about a guy who, after the death of his girlfriend, turned to religion to keep himself from suicide. Religion serves for this guy as the lithium and medicine prescribed to bipolar or schizophrenic patients. He's also so happy, ugly, lonely, excited, and horny. <laughs> this track apparently <laughs> <laughs> This track apparently was a bitch to record as Butch Vig said the band tended to speed the tempo up as they played it, and they ended up using a click track to keep in time. Dave ended up simplifying his drum parts, and Kurt particularly was frustrated with the slow progress of recording, but hey, the end result was worth it as far as I'm concerned. I read that Dave was offended when uh, Vig asked him to use a click track. He's like, I'm a drummer. I'm supposed to keep the beat. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need time. Keep, I don't need something to keep time for me. And Vig was like, you kind of do. <laughs> you telling me I can't keep time? No, Dave, you can't. <laughs> the next track is Polly, written by Kurt Cobain. Polly wants a cracker. Think I should get off her first. Think she wants some water To put out the blowtorch Isn't me Having seed Let me clip Dirty wings Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Got some rope Paul, you like this one? I do like this song this song was written about a real incident. Apparently, a girl was kidnapped from a concert and tortured, and the story was kind of big news around the area at the time, so Kurt Cobain kind of followed it. And the way the girl got away from the attacker was that she came on to him to catch him off guard. So kind of that part of the story, I guess, is what I've read that really stuck with Kurt when he wrote it. And um, so that's why he wanted to write the song about this this incident. Kurt takes the view of the bad guy, though. Yeah. Right? And so each verse has one of these dark, or, or two in some cases, but one of these dark lines to it. Like, I think I should get off her first. <laughs> or a chase would be nice for a few. Um, <laughs> this, it's, it sounds bad to laugh at. Yeah. But uh, it's just this dark, cynical style that Kurt had with his vocals. And it was... It was awesome. Yeah. Um, the guitar sound is not clean or polished. Uh, like it was just some kind of goodwill bought acoustic guitar. I love the bass break. And Kurt uh, apparently came in way too early after the bass break. But they left it in. It sounds like it fits to me. I didn't even know until I was reading about yeah. it. Yeah. Chris' bass is like a pulse throughout the song. Uh, there's no drums. Just cymbals mostly. And this was the only one that made it onto the album that was recorded in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yeah. Is it wrong for me to like this song? <laughs> I don't know. It was written in 1988, and it was originally titled Hitchhiker and then later Cracker. And like you said, it was inspired by Gerald Arthur Friend, who kidnapped a 14-year-old girl after a concert, took her to his mobile home in Washington State, suspended her from the ceiling with a pulley, raped her, and tortured her with a blowtorch. She later was able to escape, and Friend was caught and is now serving two consecutive 75-year prison terms. The lyrics are from the point of view of the rapist, and Kurt sings them without emotion, kind of matter-of-factly, while he's playing a five-string Stella acoustic guitar he bought for 20 bucks at a pawn shop. There's quiet bass under the track pulsing, that's a great way to describe it, and cymbals played by Chad Channing, the drummer who was replaced by Dave Grohl, the, the drummer prior to Dave. I love the stripped-down feel of this, and even though the lyrics are about a horrible subject, I love the way Kurt delivers them. It sort of disguises the scary picture and makes you listen to and think about the words. 
I remember hearing this for the first time, and, and you know, Polly wants a cracker. I think I should. Uh, what did he say? Did he say I think I should get off her first? Yeah. What the fuck does that? It made no yeah. sense. You yeah, had to actually I, I, read the lyrics yeah. and figure it out. And yep. Unfortunately, after this came out, there was a case of two men singing this song while raping a woman, which appalled the band, and Kurt addressed it on the liner notes to Nirvana's 1992 compilation album, Insecticide. The following track is Territorial Pissings, written by Kurt Cobain and Chet Powers. have it. I didn't know who Chet Powers was, and I tried to look it up. I was really surprised that he had writing credit for this. It yeah. Kind of, it didn't make much sense to me, mm-hmm. you know? But uh, this song is, is really cool. It's totally a metal song, but it's also totally punk at the same time. It kind of has this weird sarcasm and brevity, just like a punk song would. Dave Grohl's drums are just so freaking awesome. The beat booms as it goes into the chorus, and he kind of has this this whole second side of the album. Like he does this, not quite a drum roll, but he speeds up the drums right before yeah. the chorus. Like a yeah, yeah, that has this right? word. I think it's like, like a double roll. I think they call, they call it or something it? like that. Yeah. I think so. I might be wrong, but I and think that's what it's called. It's just I freaking love, I don't care what it's called. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. right. Like yeah, he does that a lot on this. He does it a lot, yeah. especially on the second side. Yeah, and it's it's awesome. Yeah. Um, Chris bass keeps you bouncing the whole time, and uh, the guitar is just heavy, and it has all these cool fills, which is kind of interesting to have the guitar do the fill to me. I'm used to hearing like the drum or, or the bass do some sort of fill mm-hmm. in. It ends as quick as it began, uh, like your life just flashed before your eyes. The song starts side two, which I think is a totally underrated side. Like It, kinda, it rivals the front side. It just doesn't have the, the hits. The hits, yeah. yeah. The first thing you hear on this track is Chris with his voice processed singing Get Together by the Youngbloods, way out of tune, pretty funny, and that's why Chuck Powers has that writing credit, because he wrote yeah. Get Together, so that's where the writing credit comes in. He has nothing to do with the actual right. heavy song that we hear. Then it turns into that ripping rocker with Dave playing fast and furiously, Chris playing that fast bass line, and Kurt's distortion on his guitar almost annoyingly high. In the verses, Kurt's voice is snotty, but he screams out on the choruses. The lyrics are a little murky, but to me they sort of seem to be about society and how people in general don't get along, and the narrator seems to want to find a better way to coexist. At the end, Kurt's voice really cracks, and it sounds like he's shredding his vocal cords. It's the shortest track at 2 minutes, 23 seconds, and it just bursts right by you. It's good shit. It's about, like, the lyrics about aliens. Yeah. Like, but it's obviously, like, a metaphor, right? But, or, or know, like, alien, like, I feel, like, an alienated. Right, or, right alienated, you know, yeah. yeah that's, he, he uses, that's how I like, took it to be, but, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, that's how I took it to be, too. But he uses, like, the, the alien image. Yes. Like, like, the spaceships and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it is about aliens. Maybe it's about yeah, UFOs. He was kind UFOs. of fucked up. <laughs> kind of. Jesus. The next track is Drain You, written by Kurt Cobain. I'm talking what you think this is about me. your thoughts i've always thought this one had really dirty lyrics you know like when i was a kid like really not knowing the lyrics mm-hmm. um we didn't have google back then so we couldn't look them up you right know, you had to try yeah. to figure them out or and he isn't the easiest someone. person to understand no, what he's singing no he's definitely not so the the whole idea of the whole song to me i didn't quite get at first which why the dirty lyrics kind of always yeah. stuck in my head but um it's mostly about an ex-girlfriend and um, I guess a lot of the songs have, have the same references to the same ex-girlfriend. Kurt 
had these great ways of saying things with a, such a graphic detail. And a lot of them come out here and, and drain you. Mm-hmm. The bass and drums are carrying a song again with way more guitar than uh, as opposed to uh, some of the other songs where the bass and the drums carry the, the tune. Uh, I've always been drawn to the breakdown or the bridge. What I don't know what you, what you yeah. call this one, yeah. right? It's really hypnotic. And the riff is... A lot of these riffs, they kind of like they're they're also hypnotic or it feels yeah. like circular or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, they're simple, but they catching they grab yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And it's like this always like wow wow. I like, mean, Kurt's almost exclusively playing power chords too. He's not yeah. using weird chords or anything like that. No, it's it's real simple. Yeah, right. So after the bridge, they kind of pull out of it and they rock out with the last verse and chorus and 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 they're screaming and rocking out. It's, it's a great part of the end. Yeah. This was originally titled Formula. It was written in 1990, and it's melodic and mid-tempo, and it's got a downbeat kind of vibe that's reflected in the lyrics. It's got that weird middle section that sort of has like a constant thumping beat with weird squawks and noises. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the middle section in Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. Then the power chords return, and it goes into the final verse. The lyrics, again, were inspired by Toby Vale and how their relationship was draining on Kurt. I love the lines with eyes so dilated, I've become your pupil. You've taught me everything without a poison apple. I love that shit. Kurt proves again he has a way with a catchy chorus, and this is another winner. The following track is Lounge Act, written by Kurt Cobain. Okay, Paul. All right. I love the baseline intro to this song. Um, what else does it? Is that like a groan or something? Like a vocal? Like a yeah. At the beginning uh, there. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think that's what it is. Somebody literally just doing yeah, that. It sounds like, like that, a right? Growl or yeah. yeah. This is kind of weird, but yeah, it's different. Yeah. So I love that the bass is more than just a pulse or a riff. Chris wrote this cool beat with the uh, kind of that you could pick along to if you were a bassist, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I've always liked this This as an upbeat song. It's great to sing along to. Uh, Dave Grohl's not so loud this time, but he gets louder in the second half of the song. Chris stays consistent, but Grohl and Kurt rock out at the end with Cobain's patented screaming. I always thought the song was a veiled attempt at writing obvious drug references in a poppy rock song, but it's really more about an up-and-down relationship, like a pseudo-love song. Maybe it's both love and drugs. Who knows? Mm. Or love, love and drugs. drugs. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm with you. Chris Bass is the highlight here. He kind of leads off the track and he gets to vary his bass line a bit. And Kurt's guitar seems a little bit lower in the mix. But this track on the whole sounds a little bit different than most of the record in a lot of ways. That low growl at the beginning and the way Kurt sings it in a lower register at first. Especially the first two passes through the chorus. It almost sounds like a different vocalist while the music kind of bounces along underneath him. Again, Toby Vale inspired lyrics. She must have done a number on Kurt or at the very least she left quite a mark on him. The lyrics seem to reference a love triangle or maybe Kurt felt he was being played. I don't know, but the words are evocative and by the end of the song, the chorus is extended and Kurt's doing his hoarse yelling, which is all always gets to me. This has never been a favorite of mine, but it's good. The next track is Stay Away, written by Kurt Cobain. So much like Breed, this one kind of introduces each instrument one at a time. It starts with this this cool drum intro, then the bass, then the guitar kicks in. The bass is so fast. Dave Grohl's also pounding fast. And the guitar squeals the whole time. Mm-hmm. I like the verse style, the lyrics, 
And I generally like this way that they do this, where they have this short little line, like, monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. And then this repeated line B is in, like, a different tone, where the, I don't know why, and then they kind of, like, they have, it's like a subline, or I don't know what you'd call that, like, to the, to the verse. Um, but it's really cool. And uh, the car- guitar riffs right along with it. It repeats throughout the verse. I love that. It's so interesting. Then it roars with, stay away. Yeah. Love it. Great yeah. song. Dave starts with a drum roll, and then that bass line is established, and then the song progresses with a guitar call and response with the vocals and the verses. Kurt's using that low register like in the last track. The chorus is big and noisy again, both in the music and vocals, and Kurt really rips out some screams, especially towards the end of the song. Like you, I like that monkey see, monkey do. I'd rather be dead than cool. Fuck me. Those are pretty prophetic lines. <laughs> Though exactly what it is Kurt wants no. to stay away from him, I'm not sure. Even Kurt sings, I don't know why, so maybe he doesn't know either. But he does say that God is gay. I don't know. This is kind of by the numbers for me. It's not terrible, but it doesn't do a whole lot for me either. This one's always been kind of a meh for me. Yeah, I feel, I, I'm a, I, like, I like the rockers, right? Like we talked about that in another yeah. one, right? Yeah, like, I like the rockers. So this one I've liked all, always. Yeah. You know? this is my least favorite of the rockers. That, yeah. That's the best way for me to describe it. The following track is "On a Plane," written by Kurt Cobain. Paul, you want a plane? I'm on a plane and I can't complain. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. This song is also pretty funny. Uh, I can't tell again if it's drug humor, love, both, or just some nonsense that he's writing about. But I don't care. I like it anyways. Dave is blended in on the chorus again. The riff is almost bluesy. And the bass is like a fast-paced blues jazz song. Uh, I love the bass in the short breakdown. The guitar gets into that trademark hypnotic circling again with the chorus. And the ending, uh, being almost a acapella, was always a way to slow it down right before the last song of the album. Mm-hmm. I've always liked this one. It's got some really strong hooks on it. The love myself better than you part and the wordless background vocals on the chorus are really cool. The mm, I love <laughs> yeah. that. And it continues on after the rest of the tune fades out, like you said, sort of acapella. It's the typical formula for this album, Kurt blaring out power chords, Chris anchoring the song with a simple bass line, and Dave bashing away on the skins, all combining to make some punk pop goodness that those naked morons Blink-182 couldn't pull off convincingly on the best day of their lives. (laughs) This actually has a bridge section with vocals that do change the song's flow and is both surprising and surprisingly effective. Now, I don't know what these lyrics mean, but Kurt sounds like he means it when he's singing them, and he always said people got them wrong anyway, and he didn't know what he was writing, so fuck it, put your own interpretation on them. This track gets two thumbs up. The penultimate track is Something in the Way, written by Kurt Cobain. So I read that this was the hardest one for them to record. Kurt had a lot of trouble with it, so he eventually sat down in the control room, laid down on his back, he was frustrated, and he just kind of barely sang and played guitar. And they they just started recording it because it was exactly how Kurt wanted it to go. The drums and bass were tough to record because uh, the whole track was really way too quiet, and they couldn't use a click track because it was so quiet. Kurt wanted him to play his drums really quieter, and it's definitely about as soft as Dave Grohl can play. (laughs) They do some higher harmony on the vocal dub, and the guitar is a five-string acoustic, probably the same one that he had. It is, yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, they add in a cello, which is a great sound. Yes. Kurt actually never lived under a bridge. Yes. Legend, right? <laughs> this, yep. this song didn't help. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a haunting way to end the album. Well, yeah. if you don't count the hidden track. Right. <laughs> so like you said, Kurt supposedly recorded this on a Stella acoustic guitar, sitting on his back on a couch and singing the vocals after Butch Vig heard him playing around with the song. And, and Kurt said, this is how it should sound. Kurt could hardly be bothered to tune the guitar, and that caused problems for Chris to tune his bass to it. And then, like you said, Dave really had to learn to play softly to capture the right feel. Kirk Canning, a friend of the band's, plays cello, and he adds to the depressive, heavy atmosphere of the track. And he also had a hard time tuning his cello to the Kurt's guitar. There are nice vocal harmonies from Kurt and Dave, and lyrically it seems to reference a homeless man living under a bridge. And there was a myth that Kurt lived under a bridge for a time, though that's heavily disputed by family and friends. Ultimately, the lyrics paint a chilling picture of depression and hopelessness, and I find this song to be a very effective and sobering album closer, except apparently it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the final track, Endless Nameless. How about this? Well, I had the cassette, still do, so I never even knew there was a hidden track until maybe five or six years after the album came out. A friend of mine in high school was like, what do you mean you didn't know there was a hidden track? Yeah. You know? And yeah. played it for me. So, I don't know. As far as hidden tracks go, I kind of like it. It definitely sounds more like a Bleach song or like you said, an insecticide song. And uh, it, it also kind of sounds a lot like like a Flaming Lips song. Mm. Like, if you hear some, like, deep cuts from Flaming Lips, like, it sounds a lot like them. But Chris plays this heavy, deep bass, and the guitar riff just spirals, and Dave just wails away on his drums. It's just like a bunch of noise and feedback. Yeah. Uh, Kurt is, like, drunkenly screaming these nonsensical lyrics. (laughs) It's like the Nirvana version of a concert jam. But it does sound the most like their older stuff compared to anything else on the album. And it's also kind of like the most punk song to it, at least to my ears. Which probably explains one reason why Kurt and the band were so pissed when it was left off the first pressing. As far as hitting tracks go, I don't mind it, like I said. But it's not like I fast forward the CD or anything to seek it out or look for it online to listen to it. Mm Mm-hmm. So the boys were having trouble recording Lithium, and after getting frustrated, they just rolled tape and slammed this thing out. It's just a noisy jam. It does sound like something the band was fucking around with at the time. Sounds like something older, like you said. There's tons of guitar feedback, and the bass rumbles along, and Dave mixes up some beats, and it's just a pile of shit. Kurt screams unintelligibly, and supposedly there's lyrics to this about death and dying, but fucked if I know. And it sounds like if the Velvet Underground got together with the Stooges and had an eyes-wide-shut sex party for six minutes and 43 seconds. (laughs) I don't like it. I don't need it. It's Aaron's Stinky Stinker. (laughs) Now that we're done with the track by track, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which smells like teen shit. Paul, what are your final thoughts on Nevermind? Teen shit. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So Kurt and the band often talked about how the album was a pop record, and to save their punk street cred, they made it really heavy on guitar and really booming drums. I always just lumped this whole grunge scene in with Metallica and GNR and Motley Crue and whatever. Uh, to me, it was all the same heavy metal. Uh, I thought it was weird at the time when Nirvana and other grunge bands complained about ruining their punk cred. I understand it now, but to me, punk is the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, or Blink-182, like you said, right? It's not Pearl Jam and, and Nirvana. As I got older, I kind of can see it. All these Seattle bands hit it big the same summer and fall, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana. Uh, some of the other bands not from Seattle, like 
uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Jane's Addiction, STP, Nine Inch Nails even, right? It's This album started this whole wave where there's there's a huge movement of change in the music industry. And this album especially opened up doors for alternative rock bands to get exposure on MTV and radio. So the album gets bonus points for being trend-setting. It knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the charts, largely apparently on Christmas Returns. If that's not rock and roll, I don't know <laughs> what is, man. Kids rebelling against what their parents bought them, right? Like, yeah. that's awesome. The album has been credited with themes of alienation, but I agree with Dave Grohl when he says that he hears just this purity and honesty that he hasn't heard in a long time when he listens to this album. I'd have to agree to that. This album is a huge favorite of mine and has remained one since. It helped shape my musical interest for the rest of my life. I give it a five. Very nice. Okay. It's easy to dismiss Nirvana as overhyped and overrated, with some people believing the band's lofty status is largely due to the fact that Kurt Cobain committed suicide by shotgun on April 5, 1994. But if you take a closer look at the time period when Nirvana arose, the picture becomes clearer. Generation X, the kids born between the early 1960s and the early 1980s, were searching for an identity in the culture at the time, other than being called latchkey kids, apathetic and slackerish, according to their baby boomer parents. The boomers had a tremendous influence on culture up to that point. Their attitudes and overall sense of style permeated the scene, and their kids were growing disaffected and tired of being marginalized. But there was no one to articulate this frustration, and nothing happening to make a dent in the cultural mainframe, especially in music during the 80s. Sure, there was rap and hip-hop, and that was gaining traction, but it still had years yet to fully blossom as it did at the turn of the millennium. There was alternative rock and thrash metal, but those were underground, niche scenes that stayed on the fringes and were not yet interested in breaking through to the mainstream. And there was pop and glam metal, which were mainstream, but that was escapist fantasy. It didn't reflect reality as the Gen Xers knew it. The Baby Boomers had artists from Bob Dylan to the Beatles to Bruce Springsteen saying their piece and connecting to their audience. Enter Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, out of Seattle of all places. Combining the brash noise of punk rock with the pop sense and structures of alternative rock, the sound wasn't exactly breaking new ground, but at the time it didn't sound like anything else on Top 40 radio. And the lyrics, alternately angry and sensitive, contradictory and earnest, delivered by that wounded howl of a voice, gave an entire generation of cynical kids something to point to and say, yep, that's what I'm feeling. It was the right band at the right place at the right time, and overnight, this band exploded and blew open the doors for other bands of its ilk to come on through. Suddenly, grunge, as this music would be referred to as, became the biggest musical trend happening, and bands from the Pacific Northwest were getting signed left and right. And the success totally stunned everyone involved with this record, from the record company to the band itself, especially Kurt, who was not equipped to handle it. Like Bob Dylan before him, Kurt neither asked nor wanted to be the voice of a generation. But unlike Dylan, who possessed a detached cool that helped him navigate the attention, Kurt was far more emotionally fragile. With hindsight, it's easy to see his gradual decline and eventual downfall. He certainly gave warning signs of his mental instability. But in the rush to crown him king of grunge, he ended up being swept along by his new fame until it was too late. As for me, I like this album. It took me a bit to get fully on board with it and grunge itself as I did enjoy escapist fantasy in my music and I didn't want to concede it to a bunch of flannel-wearing, whiny bunch of bums, which is what these bands all look like to me. Now that I'm older, I appreciate the music and the artists a lot more as I better understand the context in which this music came out and I can fully immerse myself in the music itself and the music holds up damn well. I give Nevermind a three and a half and here's what I would say to those who like to say Nirvana is overrated. It's true that Kurt Cobain's death elevated him to mythic status like so many dead rock stars attain, but he truly was the first person in rock music, and not the last, to fully connect with a certain generation of kids who were his peers and were wondering if they were ever going to have their voices heard. And for that, Nirvana is important. And as a member of Generation X myself, I can say that no matter how you feel about him, Kurt Cobain was ours. 
and from the R4 podcast, Kurt Donald Cobain, rest in peace. Well said, dude. Thank you. Now I'd like to thank Paul Lange for returning to the podcast and reaching Nirvana. Always fun, man. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks a lot for having me, Aaron. Of course. Anytime. Uh, again, for sure. Yeah. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Give us a shout and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, here at R4, we thank you so much for giving this podcast a listen, and a massive thank you if you like and support the show. Take care, and I'll catch you later. I'm not professional. <laughs> the following track is Rhythm. 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 Rhythm is easy. It's not that simple. Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. This is a call. Yes. Yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> what can you try again? Jeez. I haven't had the dogs on this episode. I'm um, like podcasting quite a while. Let's see, let's see the original cassette. It stopped with it. They didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about it when yeah, yeah, okay, okay. famous. Okay. Like, I didn't know there was a tin track until I was like, until like. Maybe six years after the album. I remember getting the CD and look, I'm like, what, 20 minutes this last track is or whatever the fuck it was? I'm like, what is, what? And it faded away. I'm like, and then it, there was such a long bring. I'm like, those fuckers just did, 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 did the fuck with us. And then all of a sudden, what? Yeah, because I was kind of like nodding off and all of a sudden, it startled me. What the fuck? It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it does.